Welcome to the NAM Scholars and Diagnostic Excellence Expert Introduction Podcast. Today we'll be talking about behavior change and implementation science. My name is Kim Clays and I'll be hosting this episode. I'm an associate professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. I have a background in clinical infectious diseases with a focus on antimicrobial stewardship. And I recently completed a PhD in epidemiology with my dissertation focused on improving diagnosis of urinary tract infections. Today, I have the honor of introducing our guests for our next monthly session, Dr. Julia Minson. Dr. Minson received her PhD in social psychology from Stanford University and her BA in psychology from Harvard University. She is currently an associate professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. She's a decision scientist with research interests in conflict, negotiation, judgment, and decision-making. Her primary line of research addresses the psychology of disagreement or how people engage with opinions, judgments, and decisions that are different from their own. She also studies group decision-making to uncover psychological biases that prevent maximizing the benefits of collaboration. Dr. Minson, I'm excited for the opportunity to speak with you and welcome you to this podcast. So during the intro, I hit on a few areas of your career, but can you be more background about yourself and your career trajectory? Sure, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I am a social psychologist by training. I got my PhD uh, at the psychology department at Stanford. And I have always been interested in how people communicate and sort of collaborate with folks they disagree with strongly. So a lot of my early work was actually on uh, collaboration on judgment tasks. So when we have to, you know, make a decision about something quantitative, like how long will a project take or, you know, how much something will cost uh, and how people can make better decisions when they're working on a team with a lot of disagreement. And then over time, a lot of my work has pivoted towards how people communicate on conflict. You know, how do we talk across the partisan divide? Uh, I've done some studies in the Israeli-Palestinian context. And part of the thinking here is that psychology in conflict tends to have a lot of similarities across different contexts, right? So if we can sort of understand the psychological processes that make people really upset, you know, with their spouses uh, about sort of domestic disagreements, it can, to some extent, inform us about what makes people really upset in workplace interactions or in civic spaces. And with that, what made you interested in focusing uh, your efforts in the healthcare field? A couple different areas of my life have led me in that direction. I mean, one, just sort of as a consumer of healthcare and a psychologist, I've always been really interested at observing the interactions around me uh, and just recognizing how much uh, collaboration healthcare requires, right? I mean, even the simplest conversation between a physician and a patient already involves two people. Right. But most healthcare interactions actually involve a lot more people over time, people with different opinions, people with different preferences, people with different knowledge bases. Um, And so I always found sort of the social complexity of it really fascinating uh, from the research perspective. The last few years of my career were really focused on American partisan conflict, and we were developing communication interventions that would allow liberals and conservatives to have better conversations across the partisan divide, across like a variety of issues. You know, we were running studies about, you know, people talking about the Black Lives Matter movement or people talking about, you know, the death penalty, people talking about sexual assault. Um, And so we were starting to devise what we thought were really promising interventions 
And then, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic happened uh, and we're all at home waiting for the vaccine so that we could leave our homes and start life again. And then the vaccine came and that suddenly became super politicized. And I thought, wow, okay, I've been studying political conflict and all of a sudden medicine is political. And so we started running experiments, applying very similar interventions to what we developed for political conversations for conversations about vaccines. Um, And as we started running those studies and as we started talking to more and more people in healthcare about our results, what we heard was, well, you know, you're studying disagreement around vaccines, but let me tell you about all the other kinds of disagreements I encounter every day. (laughs) Um, And so I just came to realize that there's a huge need out there for empirically validated uh, interventions for people in healthcare to be able to talk about opposing views. And so here we are. What are those interventions like that you've worked on inside COVID that you're planning to move to other healthcare settings? Uh, Yeah, certainly. So a lot of the work that we have done sort of stems from a really old idea in clinical psychology, social psychology, which is that people in disagreement do better if they feel like their counterpart is really thoughtfully engaging with their perspective. Right. So going back to like 1950s humanistic psychology, we started talking about the idea of active listening and how, you know, people really want to feel heard. And it's sort of all true. And we have lots and lots of evidence that people like feeling heard. And there's evidence in healthcare about how patients, you know, are much better at medication adherence, for example, if they feel heard. The problem is giving somebody that feeling is tricky right? So what do I do in order to give you the subjective experience of feeling heard? Um, And so there's a lot of um, work in that space where we train people in different ways of sort of demonstrating empathy or demonstrating active listening. Um, And for sort of my druthers, it's all a little bit too fuzzy, right? Um, especially if you are under time pressure, if you're stressed out, if it's a difficult conversation, uh, it's just, it's hard when somebody says, you know, try to be more empathetic. It's hard to know exactly what to do with that advice. Um, and so what we've done is we have turned to specifying behavior that people can engage in that demonstrates active engagement with the opposing perspective. And when we say behavior, I mean specifically linguistic behavior, so words and phrases, right? Like if you think about it, every word that comes out of your mouth is a behavior because you you just did a thing that other people can recognize. Um, and so what we've done is we use basically natural language processing, right? So everybody's talking about AI right now. It's not as sophisticated as that, but it's simply looking at the words and phrases people use in conversations and using machine learning to identify the specific words and phrases that make counterparts feel heard. And the idea is teaching people to use specific words and phrases 
and not use other words and phrases is a lot easier than trying to tell them to feel more empathy or even to try to express more empathy because the instructions are more precise. You know, you know when you did it right uh, and your counterpart knows when you did it right. Those are the types of techniques that we really focus on in my lab. Are those in the area of conversational receptiveness? Yes. So one of the one of the tools we have been working on for the last few years is a technique, a kind of communication style you would call conversational receptiveness. So the idea is that receptiveness is engagement with opposing views, right? Am I really listening and thoughtfully processing what you are telling me? But that's inside your head. Conversational receptiveness is words and phrases that show you that I'm actively engaged with your point of view. That's what we develop using machine learning is identifying what those words and phrases are. In sort of related work, we've been looking at how do people communicate that they're interested and curious about opposing views, that their goal in the conversation is not to argue but to really understand where the other person is coming from. So that work has a similar flavor to it, which is all, you know, can we use concrete speech acts to demonstrate internal intentions? Yes, when I was reading about your work, conversational receptiveness really resonated with me because as I've mentioned to you before, as being an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist, I'm always reaching out to people with potential disagreements, but with the goal of reaching the same ends for the means of the patient. And we often use behavioral strategies and certain phrases to make sure that we are being as empathetic and as receptive as possible. Because again, we're working from behind the screen. We're not saying we know everything about the patient. We're just saying that from our view, this is what we see might be improved. How can we work with you to improve antimicrobials? So that really resonated with me when I was reading about some of your work, and I'm looking forward to seeing it translate into improving diagnosis as well. Thank you. Yes. So I think that's a a really great example. Um, So antibiotic stewardship is uh, one of the areas that I'm very interested in and one of the areas that uh, clinicians that I have talked to raised, you know, I say vaccines, they say, yeah, but also antibiotics. You know, and I think a lot of these areas are the ones that are just so common. Uh, everybody who does sort of clinical work can pull up an example from, you know, within last week when a patient wanted something that wasn't the appropriate treatment or not the, you know, appropriate test. And then they got really upset when they didn't get exactly what they want. Um, and I think as people practice over time, many of them find their way towards something that's like conversational receptiveness, right? I mean, that's basically what you're doing is you're being very thoughtful about your language and your choice of words because you recognize that there's a potential for conflict. And you also recognize that the conversation will be more productive if there is no conflict. And what we're hoping to do is just sort of save folks all that time and thinking, you know, and sort of instead of saying, okay, well, 10 years from now, you will be really good at these conversations. We'd like to say, okay, here is a cheat sheet. <laughs> Let's make you good at these conversations now. So I think, I think that's one piece of it. And I think the other piece of it is that once you start thinking hard about how receptive you should be and in what ways you should be receptive, 
they're important questions that, you know, that we need to sort of grapple with, right? So, you know, if somebody is, you know, propagating a conspiracy theory about vaccines, should I be receptive? Right. And what does that mean? And are there downsides? I think these are the types of concerns that sometimes keep very thoughtful people from being receptive because they're like, well, I don't know about this, so I'm not going to do it. And that's what we think about all day long. (laughs) Correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of your work's focused on uh, dyadic decision making. And I'm curious how you plan to extend that, because as you mentioned, the healthcare team is often very complex with a lot of different specialists or other healthcare providers coming in and out of care. It's a very complex dynamic process. So I was wondering, from the lessons you've learned from your work, how to extend that to that larger care team? That's a great question because a lot of communication has sort of a dynamic quality to it, right? Um, and that can be both good and bad. So one of the things that we have learned about receptiveness in particular is that it has a contagious quality, for lack of a better word. Um, So we've done studies where we can train one person in an experiment to be receptive, and then their counterpart, who doesn't realize that the other person received instructions, becomes more receptive uh, through sheer sort of mimicry, right? So they start picking up on the conversational style of the first receptive person, And that makes them more receptive. And so what that suggests then is that, I mean, first of all, on an individual perspective, right, from a completely like self-centered myopic perspective, what that suggests is that an easy way to make other people receptive to you is to be receptive to them, right? But from an organizational perspective, what that also suggests is that the more people you train and the more you create the training at sort of the team level, the better the results are going to be because it kind of mushrooms. So really sort of thinking structurally about how to deliver training, I think that particular feature of receptiveness gives us some insights. Awesome. And uh, during the session with the NAM scholars, we'll be talking about behavior change, obviously, but what are some of the topics you hope to cover with our time together with a larger group? A lot of people in healthcare will probably be pretty aligned with me on this. Um, It's sort of the idea that we should really be thinking very hard about uh, the quality of evidence we have for interventions, especially, I think, in the social sciences and in these soft skills. uh, Sometimes we forget that requirement. And so we spend a lot of time and effort implementing, implementing ideas that are good on face value, but really don't have uh, empirical results to support them. I think that's one piece. And, you know, the piece that's sort of even more complicated is that even for interventions where we do have good empirical evidence from controlled studies, there is sort of this problem of scaling and implementation. And so being really thoughtful about what are the barriers to scaling, I think is a really sort of useful, useful exercise if we're not going to waste a lot of time and resources on something that's ultimately not going to serve our purposes. Well, those are both great. And I think our NAM scholars will be very interested in, in discussing that more uh, next month. And to kind of wrap up, I just wanted to ask, one: what's one piece of advice you'd give to the NAM scholars uh, that we're going to be meeting with? Um, you know, I think one piece of advice that I give to almost 
everyone in the world. And it's maybe a little bit uh, Pollyannish, but I would say, you know, assume good intentions. Uh, it's so easy, especially these days, especially when we're constantly stressed out and encountering people with seemingly crazy opinions to make sort of really negative inferences about them. But to the extent that you can assume that other people are also trying their best, when they disagree with you, it kind of raises an interesting question of why do we disagree? Um, and, and, and I think that's a better place to start than how most of these conversations start. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for meeting today. I can't wait to have our group meeting. And with that, I think we can wrap up the introductory podcast. Mm -hmm.